two sober chicks. I'm Lisa. Merry Christmas to all those who celebrate. Today is December 25th, and it is 2022. Julie and I would like to give you a gift, and hopefully it will be a gift that keeps on giving. Welcome to our new speaker series. Each week we're going to bring to you a new speaker from a different area. Please welcome Bob C. from Alexandria, Kentucky. Hi everybody, I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, it's uh, Today is a, uh, just for me personally, uh, uh, is a very special day for me. So it was, uh, it was uh, real meaningful that your group would ask me to speak today. And I, I really consider it a privilege. Um, uh, just a few things, just uh, current things going on. Um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, wife's mother, her uh and it was when i saw aaron join it was i i it just it was sort of like uh uh, uh i don't know what it was just from jerusalem because that's where she wanted to go was jerusalem her life's goal was to go to jerusalem she it was on a pilgrimage for her and so uh my buddy and his um his wife uh made a gift to her to go to jerusalem during this this season, this time of the year, and uh, she got over there uh, 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 earlier in the week last week, and uh, and it was all laid out. She was going to tour all the sites uh, and everything uh, that she desired to see. And uh, about third day into the trip, uh, she had a massive heart attack and she passed away. And uh, uh, and uh, you know. Uh, my buddy said, well, uh, something she always wanted to do her life. So I guess if that's where, that's, you know, where she had to go, I'm sure that she was content going there. And so his wife was really upset and she said, will you call whoever consulate or whoever you call and make arrangements to have her body sent home. And, uh, uh, he, you know, of course he can, he conceded to do that and he started calling around and, he finally got a hold of the authorities to make the arrangements, and uh, the uh, person he was talking to says, "Now we can bury her over here. We can bury her over here for like five hundred dollars." He said, "But to ship her home, he says it's going to cost about five thousand. And he said, "What do you like to do?" And he sat there and he thought a minute, and he said, "You know, I heard a story about a guy that died over there." And came back to life in three days. You better send my mother-in-law home. So, so you know, I, I I guess he was a little bit. He didn't want to relive another life with her. I don't know what the deal was. So anyway, uh, I found it humorous. Not that some people don't. Know, but uh, uh, it's just good to be here. Uh, um, Alcoholics Anonymous has been. Um, has just been so wonderful for me. Uh, 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 I've been able to obtain and maintain sobriety over a period of time. And and I have to tell you, it's in the long run where it really happens. This this is not a uh, this is not a short run thing. This is not a thing. And it was one of my greatest obstacles because what would I would do was uh, I would come in to and I used to think it was AA, but I was really going through treatment. And I'll tell you about my my trips through treatment. 
but I thought I was coming into AA because treatment would send me to AA. And, you know, I'd get my life back together a little bit and, uh, and, and things would seem to be better and I'd get a job and I could show up to work and I'd quit coming to AA. And I did that for seven years before I got sober. Uh, I, I come around Alcoholics Anonymous in 1979, and I never got sober until 1986. So it was a, a bit of a journey. It was a bit of a journey just getting here. Uh, and then it was another bit of a journey to learn, realize that I needed to stay here one day at a time. And you keep kept telling me that, but I, I wouldn't listen. Um, I have to tell you that uh, uh, on my journey here in AA, and as I look back, the parts that I can remember while there was most of the time, some of the things that I thought was the worst things in the world that was happening to me turned out to be the best things that ever did. And one of them was the day that the judge slammed the gavel down, sentenced me to two years in the Kentucky State Reformatory for selling drugs. And if you'd have said, uh, how was that day in your life? I'd have said that was a bad day. That was one of the worst days in my life. And they took me down and they locked me up. And I never saw it. It took me years of being sober to realize that I would have never come to AA if, uh, if I wouldn't have got locked up. I want to tell you why. I, I was just so prideful and so egotistical. Uh, and, uh, and first of all, it was just hard for me to grasp the fact that a 12-ounce bottle of beer was destroying my life. I didn't realize it was all of them that I was drinking. But a 12-ounce bottle of beer was destroying my life. And... When I got into penitentiary, I met a guy who had done two numbers, and he and I said, well, you know, uh, my goal is to get out. I'm going to tell you. My goal was nothing more. The moment they slammed that door behind me, my goal was to get out. And I said, what's the deal down here? What do you do? And he laid out some stuff, and, and uh, two of the most important things he laid out to me was, uh, if you've ever been busted for drugs or alcohol, you need to go to Darius over here at the Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Education, which was a, a, a program in the penitentiary, and Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I've been busted for both, so I thought, well, I guess I better go to both. Well, I like Darris because it was an eight-week program. They give you a certificate. You can take it up and put it on your case, put it on your file, give it to your caseworker. But Alcoholics Anonymous kept meeting every week and every week and every week, and this guy uh, that told me about it was Gorn, and he kept aggravating me. And finally, one day I said, Okay. So I went to one meeting in the Kentucky State Performatory and started listening and done the things that I needed to do uh, uh, so I could get out. I got a GED. I just sort of walked the line. Now, walking the line wasn't that hard for me when I needed to do it and I wanted something bad enough because I'd already been in the United States Army, served a tour in Vietnam. And then I come home, and I was in the, in the United States Marine Corps in 1974, Army in 71, Marine Corps in 74. And uh, so I knew how to, uh, in the Marine Corps, they called stand in the line in boot camp. And I knew how to stand the line. I knew how to take direction. I knew how to do just enough to fly under the radar to stay out of trouble so I could get what I needed to get. And if it was in boot camp, it was graduation boot camp and basic training. And the penitentiary, uh, graduate from basic training in penitentiary, get out of the penitentiary. And so two years in the penitentiary was uh, eight months to the board, uh, the parole board. And so I kept my nose clean, went before the board, and I made parole. And um, 
up to that point, uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I really couldn't connect with the fact that drinking was my problem. Uh, one meeting in AA isn't going to convince you of that. All the education that, that you know, I knew it was the drug because that's what sent me to the penitentiary, but it wasn't my drink, you know. And that's how I found out that I was an alcoholic. And again, I never figured, discovered that unless I'd have come to AA. But the one thing I realized is as many and as much uh, drugs, that, many drugs that I did, as much dope that I did, when the heat got on, I could quit doing the drug. And my drinking would shoot through the ceiling and I could never quit drinking it until it just got so bad I couldn't stand it anymore or they locked me up. And I, I got locked up quite a bit towards the end of my drinking. Uh, you know, I was 21 uh, when I got out of the service and I had uh, not been in trouble uh, by the time uh, 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 by the time I was 29, I'd been married, divorced. I'd been in uh, county jail uh, more than I'd been on the street. And they they finally, uh, uh, I you know they finally I just got tired of me and they sent me to the penitentiary. And I'd have told you that they were always out to get me. They were always you know they just won't leave me alone. And the fact is, as I sobered up and looked back and saw the reality of it. I'm amazed at how many chances that they give me and how hard they tried not to send me to the penitentiary. And I went to the penitentiary because I insisted on it by my own actions, you know. And I could say alcohol sent me there. Alcohol just set me free or alcohol put in my head that I could do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. And the state of Kentucky, the Newport, Covington, and Cincinnati police did not agree with that at all. And they proved it to me. They kept locking me up and locking me up. So I went and I did did my time in the penitentiary, and um, um, I, I, I got to tell you, my first drink was about 14, 15, and it was on whiskey, and I got so sick, I didn't drink whiskey for 10 years after that. But I found out that beer, and I, I had a blackout my first drunk, but I found out that beer, vodka, and all this other alcohol would do the same thing. And I really did relatively okay with it. My drinking, I wasn't all trouble for me, even though I blacked out uh, the first time uh, uh, that I drank. Uh, I was 17 years old, living on my own. I, I quit school, and my stepdad thought if I was that smart, I needed to get out on my own and make a living. And I ended up living on a farm until I got a job in a factory, and I went to work in a factory. And, and at 17, 18, and 19, I was doing pretty good. Actually, I was still drinking pretty heavy at 17, and a friend, we would meet at, at a White Castle up the street and drink coffee. I was working third shift before we'd go in, and I went in there one day, and I was shaking so bad, I spilled out half a cup of coffee uh, on the counter at 17. And when I say alcohol wasn't causing me no problem, I didn't say, I meant that uh, outwardly. It wasn't the consequences. I wasn't going to jail. I was able to go to work. I was able to take care of my life. I was able to do things I needed to do. And this guy saw it and he said, uh, uh, you know, he, he went home and told his mom. And his mom said, uh, he, they knew me from a uh, city I lived in. Uh, at, uh, we grew up in the same little city together down in Dayton, Kentucky. And uh, he told his mom and then his mom said, well, see if you come over here. We'll see if we can get him straight out. And these people brought me into their home. They showed me their love. I mean, I, at the time, I was able to be respectful. I followed the, 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 the rules of their house, and it was a good deal. I was 15 years old, 
I mean, I was 17 years old working 40 hours a week, paying $15 a week rent. So that left all that money to, to do whatever I wanted to. And I assure you, I drank most of it up. I didn't save a lot of it even at 17. And uh, in 19 is when I got drafted in, into the service. And I remember uh, these people, uh, 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 the man of the house, uh, his name was uh, Irv. He said, I got my letter. And uh, he looked at me. I'm sure I turned white because Vietnam was going on. I knew I'd go there. And he looked at me and he said, Bob, it'll be the greatest thing you'll ever do is to serve your country. And and I have to admit that that was some pretty good advice. The only thing is I found out since I've come here, there's only a, one other thing greater that I've done than serve my country. And that's God and my fellow man. And And you taught me that here. And that's why... I love to see my grandkids and my kids during Christmas, but when I'm watching the ads on the TV and, and everybody's trying to into the consumer world, and they're saying this is a season of giving, and I sit there and I think, you know, my book taught me that giving rather than getting is a guiding principle. So if I am living Alcoholics Anonymous, every day is a season of giving for me one way or the other, and that's what AA has done. And I'm going to tell you what, that's a true gift for a taker like me, because when I got here, it was all about what I could, what was I going to get out of each and every situation, and what was I going to get from you? No thought of what I could ever contribute, no thought to whatever I could bring into your life, but only what I could give out, and that's essentially what I became, and in society, and the people around you, even your family, my family, got to where they just got tired of it. They got tired of watching me killing myself with alcoholism, and they just got tired of me coming into their life and just sucking the life and everything I could get out of them. And uh, by the time I got here, I was uh, homeless and helpless. I uh, uh, I got out of the penitentiary and went back to, I, I, I you know, I didn't need Alcoholics Anonymous. I needed to get out of the pen. And my, my the pro board liked it. And uh, I went back to the same life that I was living. I got a job. I tried to maintain a job. And, uh, of course, there's a moment I drink. I walk away from my job, and I got a uh, drunken disorderly. I went in and pleaded guilty, went over and told my parole officer. He said, next time we're going to have to take you in custody. It happened again. I thought I'd run the same game. I went in and pleaded guilty. The big doors in the courtroom opened up. My parole officer came in and took me custody. And here was my attitude by the time, by this time in my life, is he come in, he took me into custody. He's taken me from the circuit court over to the jailhouse. And he says, if you just tell me what I can do, I'll do what I can do to help you. And I, I thought, you don't want to help. I not thought, I said, you don't want to help me. You want to send me back to the penitentiary. I just couldn't believe that anybody really wants when you're not willing or able to help anybody else, how can you comprehend somebody wanting to help you? You know, that's people talk about uh, the, the curse of a liar and a cheat and a thief isn't that they can't trust anybody else. It's like not that they can't trust themselves, uh, uh, other people. It's that they can't trust themselves or that was my case. And so he takes me over and he locks me up and I'm making all kinds of threats. We just had a big riot at the jail, you know, and of course I'm, I'm scared to death. I wouldn't admit it to you and said, uh, 
what does have a big right? You let me sit in this jail for three or four months before you have a PV hearing. Get my PV hearing, send me back to penitentiary and let me do my time. And he said, I'll do it. In two weeks, I had a PV hearing in the old jailhouse was separate from the courthouse. And he had to come over, take me from the jail, and we walk over to the uh, uh, to the courthouse. And we're walking over from the courthouse to the jailhouse. And he says, Bob, do you think you have a uh, do you think you have a problem? And I thought, I'm just a smart ass, is all I am. And I thought, you're damn right, I got 14 months on the shelf. And I'm gonna have to go back and I'm gonna have to do it all, you know. And 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 then it hit me because being in the service, you know, being in the military, being locked up, uh, I knew how to say things that I, I knew that if I said what people wanted to hear, I could get what I wanted. See that that for me. That was one of my greatest ploys as a taker. You know what I mean? Say what you want to hear so I can get what I want to get. Then I get what I want to get. Whatever I told you I would do or whatever I told you, whatever I told you, I never kept my word. Because once I got what I wanted, I was off and on moving on to my next victim, per se. And I said, uh, he, uh, he said, do you think you have a drinking problem? And I said, that's it. <laughs> I said, you, you better believe it, buddy. I got a drinking problem. 14 months on the shelf was all on my mind. But I do remember, and this is how God, as I understand it, God uh, works in my life. I was sitting in a bar. I was about ready to fall off the bar stool, and there was a guy sitting two, two seats down that I worked with, told me uh, that I needed help, and I needed to go into the VA, and he told me about a treatment program in the VA hospital for veterans. And I never knew nothing about it. I, I knew very little, knew, knew very little about AA. And I was ready to fight him that day when he told me that to think that I was that bad. You're sitting here with me and you're telling me. And, but it came in handy when I was on that broth. I said, you know what? There's a treatment program over to VA and I can get in there. And it had to be free because I couldn't rub two nickels together. I drink every time I had a job and I would drink. Once I started drinking, I would drink it up to the point where I couldn't show up for work. Then I would lose my job, and then I was out on the streets stealing, buying cheap and stealing again. Not that I ever really quit; it just wasn't as bad. And uh, and he said, "Well, you know, Bob, if you agree to get help, I'll recommend leniency." And he did, and I did, and all I'm doing is playing the game. And I ended up uh, over uh, one of the oldest. It is the oldest operating center in the United States. It's here in Cincinnati. It's called 405 Oak Street. And right down the street from it was a detox. And uh, so uh, 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 that that was my first detox. And, and that was when I was really introduced to AA out here on the street. And I'm not going to go into all of my all of my little journeys through here and there. I call them tours. But I, from detox, I went to the VA. I did a 28-day program. From there, I went to... Uh, Good Shepherd Hall is called CCAT now. It's comfortable care for uh, alcoholism treatment. It's one of our big treatment centers around here. But it was Good Shepherd Hall at the time and stayed there 30 days. And, and here's the thing that I've learned. is you know, you take alcohol out of my life, and I don't really have to do a lot. And it gets better pretty quick for me. You know, I, if I'm not drinking, I'm able to show up for work. I can work every day. I can pay rent. I can do everything that was ever needfully doing. But here's the problem. What I didn't realize is to, to really embrace the spiritual way of life, 
because I didn't understand, but I've come to find out that there's a fullness to this. You know, and my problem is I'm the guy, I'm a minimum wager. I'm willing to, what, when you, when you, when you, by the time I got, by the time I got the, uh, you know, really got the AAA, I was sleeping in shed with a shed with a dog. I was sleeping on the street. My family wouldn't do nothing, wanted nothing to do with me. They would have done anything for me if I'd have done, wanted to do something for myself. But I wouldn't do anything for myself, and they knew I wanted to drink. It just got tired of me. And so I come in here, and if I can go 30 days without drinking, my life gets pretty good pretty quick compared to where I came from. I can't grasp. I, I don't even realize that a life beyond my comprehension is within my reach, but coming in here new was beyond my grasp. Do you see? And, and so, you know, I would settle for enough to get by. And a lot of good stuff happened. Uh, I, I, I stayed sober for 30 days. Uh, by the time I got here, I had a set of twins that I hadn't seen in 18 years, 17 years. Uh, uh, I had a, a daughter by another lady who'd been in a foster home two times. And um, uh, me and her had stayed together long enough that I, that I raised my daughter for, I did, I, I lived around my daughter drunk for two years. I, I don't know if it was raising her, raising her or not. I was just a drunken bum. Uh, but, but I was with her, if that's worth anything. And, uh, and living there, this is how good my life got. Without taking a step, without getting a sponsor, uh, I just stayed there 28 days, and a lot of good stuff happened. BDR, Bobby Tools, Ohio Job Service helped me get a job. Uh, BVR helped me get an apartment. I was awarded custody of my, my five-year-old daughter, and I walked out of there and had a job and everything I ever needed, and I didn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And you see, uh, one of the, uh, there was a lady, one of the ladies here at the meeting said She'd been out of, out of treatment for a year. And it sounded like she'd been going to AA because, and that's really good because the fact is I would never go. And I didn't understand that the most important thing that treatment taught me a lot of stuff. Please don't misunderstand me. But the most important thing they taught me was that if I wanted to stay sober, I needed to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. So what it ended up happening was, is I walked out of there. I didn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous and they're paying for daycare for my daughter. I mean, really, I have no, I have no needs. I have a lot of wants, but I have no needs. All of my needs are met, and I won't go to AA. Well, in, I lived on Green Street in Cincinnati. You guys wouldn't know. Stacy probably knows where it's at. And and, and my my daughter went to the daycare uh, at a uh, at a church across from Washington Park at the time. This is uh, seventy. This is probably 79, maybe uh, early 80. And um, I would have to walk down the street in the morning and drop her off and walk down the street in the evening and pick her up and bring her home. And on that walk up and down Ray Street, we would cross, a, we would, I would go past a couple bars. And the bar that always attracted me was the Race Inn. It's called the Race Inn. You'd go by there and you'd smell the, the, the stale smoke and the stench of the stale beer. and and I'm telling you, if you're a real alcoholic, I don't know about you, but we'd walk by every day, and I never thought 
I, I never realized how much I was thinking about it. I'll put it that way. Because one day I decided we was going to go in. I was going to shoot a game four and, and drink a Coke. Well, we're on the corner of Racing Green was a little delicatessen. And I went in that bar, shot a game of pool, drank a Coke, grabbed my little girl. We went over and I stopped at that bar and I got a quarter beer. And I and, and we went up and we had supper and I drank that quarter beer. You know what? I woke up the next day and I felt good. Went to work. My daughter to uh, uh, down to uh, uh, down to daycare and come back. But here's the lie that alcoholism tells me. You see, that didn't cause you no problem. No hangover. You felt good. You got to work. You got your daughter here. You're doing what you need to be doing. And the next thing I know, I'm stopping over at one of the bars at lunch, and I'm drinking my lunch. And the next thing you know, what happens is I get mad at my boss. I quit my job on Finley Market. I go to the Race Street IGA, which was their corner of Elder and Race. I go in there. I work there two weeks. I get a check. I go up and cash my check at Provident on Elder and Vine. And I go down and I pick up my little girl and I walk over into Newport, which is where I'm from, uh, where I did all my partying. And I and I go out on a two-week drunk and drug that little five-year-old girl to every sewer that ever lived in in my life. And I come out of a blackout and I, I look down at her and I can't remember when she bathed, when she ate. And, and you know, and, and I, you know, I don't even know if she's okay. And the fact was, I realized until I come out of the black cap that I really didn't care. And I called her mother, and I, and her mother, when I took custody of her, her mother said she had to leave town, and it was either put her in a foster home or take custody. I thought taking the custody would be the best thing. I wanted to be a good father. I, I promise you, I did. I wanted to be. I wanted to raise my children. But part of the great the greatest guilt and remorse that I suffered day to day in my drinking was not being able to take care of my children. I'm telling you where I come from, that's a big deal. That's a big deal to be able to take. And once I took a drink, I couldn't do nothing but take another drink. And I didn't understand that that's alcoholism. The effect it produces to me in my life. And then once I take it and I start, I can't stop that I've crossed that line where there's no return to the human aid. And uh, I called her mother, was back in town, and I am just amazed. This just shows me, what it showed me was the, the power of God in my life. Because I am so egotistic that my, and prideful that my pride my ego would not allow me to call her mother and say and admit that I could not take care of my little girl. But I believe that this power that I've been introduced to an Alcoholics Anonymous that I call God, inner, inner he, he interceded there, and he, and, and he made me aware of how I was treating my little girl. And I called her mother, and I said, I can't take care of her anymore. And her mother said, well, bring her home. And I walked her down the street, and uh, I took her to her mother's house, and there was a wrought iron gate in the front. And I heard her little step, walk, feet walk up the steps, and her little hand hit the door, and I heard her mother's voice. And I say I heard it, and the reason I heard it, was because I was so ashamed I couldn't look up. I'm telling you. And you know what? I'm going to tell you, I, since I've been in AA, I've heard people say, I choose not to drink today and I choose that. Well, that may be their case. I, I, I can't argue their journey. I'm just going to tell you, if that's the day, if I could have choose to quit drinking, that would have been the day I chose to quit drinking. Because I felt all the guilt 
I felt all the pain and I felt all the shame that any man would ever want to feel. And I turned and I walked away. And here's a funny thing. If I want, if all that guilt and shame, remorse and pain, you would think that I, that I, that I would, would quit, but I had to have another drink. And that's what I did. I pursued another drink. And from there, I went back uh, to the VA. I went to building, building, building three. I ended up Mount Airy Shelter, which is a shelter for homeless men through the VA. Again, in the VA into Prospect House. And I stayed there six months. And the problem is they're where I go. Everybody is, is good when I get there. And I get in these halfway houses. They say, what are you, gonna, what are you willing to do about them? I say, anything. Just tell me, please, anything. You give me three squares. Uh, three hots and a cot and and uh, get the body functioning right. I'll just put it that way. And I start feeling a little better. And the people around me turn into assholes. I don't know what happens to them. I don't know what really goes wrong with them. But they turn it. And, and, you know, them counselors piss me off. And you know what? Well, I'll show you. I've been working and saving up money. And I don't know how to spend no money. Because, you know, all I've ever spent my money on for years is, is, is alcohol and drugs. And, and, you know, so I got a pocket full of money saved up. I buy me a car and I go get me a case of beer and a bag of pot. And I run off the Newport and I catch up with the old friends and we're at it again. And I'm out there six more months. And I come back. And this time I went into Mount Airy Shelter, Mount Airy Shelter. I went back into Prospect House and I'm going to tell you, what are you willing to do, Bob? <laughs> anything you say, anything you say. And as, as difficult as it was, and as quick as they turned into assholes again, I was able to stay there for two years. And that's America. And I stayed there two years and a lot of good stuff happened. But you got to remember, I'm a minimum wager. I'm willing to settle for only enough to get by. And what I did is I would come in there and I went to, I went to AA for two years. Yet, you know, if you want to live there, you got to go to AA. As I look back, what I realized is, I never went to AA because I really believe I really didn't believe I was an alcoholic. And this is what I found out about me. If I'm not convinced I'm an alcoholic, I'll never do what an alcoholic does to stay sober. And it, the lady read it in the beginning. The program of action outlined in our 12 steps. Yeah, I, you know, I would go through the motions and I'd work the steps. I'd take the steps up to the fourth step. I remember taking them all the way up to the ninth step and I bounced in and out and I stayed there for two years and my life got good and I was going to college and, 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 and I got me a job and I'm, I'm going to work every day and I'm going to get me some knowledge and a little blog come along. And she had two kids, a French poodle and a mobile home. And I don't care how you shake it. It's out in the County in Campbell County. And, and I'm living in, in Price Hill, in a halfway house, I don't care how you shake it, that's a step up from a halfway house, you know, and, and I just looked there and said, what do you think, baby? And she said, yeah, I'm gone, you know, I mean, I'm out there, and I think I got it because I'm two years sober, and I walked away from Alcoholics Anonymous again. It was like, thank you, I got all, I got, see, I'm still a taker, and I got everything that I want. I have no idea of what I need and unless I stay with you, get into the program of action and take the 12 steps, I never understand. And I'm telling you what, I am thoroughly convinced that I am sober today, but for the grace of God, because it is not my nature to do the things outlined in the 12 steps of alcoholics. No, it is not my nature. I'm a self-will individual, self-will run riot, 
And I know better than anybody walking the face of the earth and even those above the face of the earth because I am that I am, you see, and I play the role. And uh, things are good. I got me a wife, two kids, a French food, a mobile home, got promoted to assistant manager, but I'm crazy. And my wife can't figure out what's wrong with me, and she's scared. She, she calls the only person she knows in AA, and he's he's just like me. He's crazy as I am. I don't know if Stacy remembers Jim B or not. Uh, he he left he left and went to uh, Hawaii and then the Philippines. But uh, uh, he was just he was as crazy as I was. He got on the phone. But I'm going to tell you what. All this, I'm just not the kind. I'm not warm and fuzzy. I'm going to tell you. I love God and I love you, but when it comes to seeing you do things, you know, if I'm working with a guy and he's doing stuff that I've done myself and I see that it's going to lead him to drink, I don't pull no punches. And this guy didn't pull no punches. And he, he I'm going to tell you what I found out was he loved me enough that he was more concerned with my life than my feelings. And he told me the truth. And if you're going to tell somebody the truth, you can't be afraid of offending anyone. And I, and, Basically, he called me, said, how you doing? She called him and said, he's crazy. Sorry, I muted myself. And he said, uh, he said, how you doing? And I proceeded to tell him how well I was doing. And by the standards of the world, I was doing good. I, we bought that. We sold the single wide, bought the double wide. I got two two cars now. I'm assistant manager at the largest C-store chain in the country. And I could told you more about its history than I could AA. And, uh, uh, and I'm making more money than I ever made in my life. And it wasn't a lot, but when you haven't worked steady for a long time, if you're working steady, it's more money than you ever made in your life. And uh, we were doing pretty well. So why would I need Alcoholics Anonymous? Once again, I got what I wanted. I didn't understand what I needed. And he says, how you doing? And I proceeded to tell him. And he asked me about three times. said, look, man, what do you keep asking me for? And he says, he said, well, when's the last time you've been to a meeting? And I said, you know, I just haven't had time for them meetings. And he says, and you think you're all right? He said, oh, shit, you're on a dry drunk. You better get your ass to an AA meeting. Here's the craziest thing. I lived three miles from one of the best AA meetings in Northern Kentucky, the big A, and, and hadn't been going. But I knew he was telling me the truth. And, and I, as much as I didn't like it, I said, you're right, man. I got to go. I'll talk to you later. And I hung up the phone, and I started coming back to AA. And I'm going to tell you this real quick. I was two years sober when I left. I I was just I was four years sober now. By the time I got back to AA, I was coming up on five years sober, and I had a sponsor. But I I took some electroterpene hydrate and a couple Xanax, and I changed my sobriety date. So before we, you know, that's why I never got here to 86. I hadn't drank any. I'm not justifying anything. I didn't drink any distilled alcohol. So. I really, you know, I but I took Xanax and drank electroterpene hydrate. There's a lot of alcohol in electroterpene hydrate and a lot of codeine. So I changed my sobriety date, and, and I'm glad that I did. But I started coming around at eight like I always did. And uh, I would show up real quick, and I would go to, you know, run their meeting and run out. And actually, I was scared. And I'm not sure I really wanted to get to know any people or anything. So, you know, uh, and what happened is my little brother, ended up in um, in jail again. I'll tell you something about my little brother real quick. My little brother, uh, when he turned 21, I went to his house with a case of beer and a bag of pot, and I said, you're 21, you're a man now. Let's party. It was through the week. 
he needed to go to work the next day, but I didn't, you know, I, I'm not working, I'm drinking. And his wife grabs her head and says, this is not a good idea. And um, so we partied that night and I don't know if he went to work, I can't remember, but I know I started using drugs intravenously and I would go to his, I'd go cop and go to his house and say, can I go in your bathroom? He just freaking out. He said, oh, don't go around the I said, let me go in your bathroom and go to the bathroom and do what I do. And my lines had got so bad that he'd have to come, I'd ask him to come in and hold me off. And one day he's standing there and I'm, I'm doing meth, I'm shooting meth. And he says, man, if anybody ever sticks a needle in my arm, Bob, it'll be you. And you know, in that state of mind, that really, I, at the time I thought, well, that's really a privilege. But I hate to tell you this, and I stuck a needle in my little brother's arm and he started shooting drugs and uh, we went off. He did two numbers in the penitentiary and, and both times me and him were selling drugs together. And the first time he got busted and he did a number. And the second time that, that he went down, him and I went down on the same set of sealed indictments. And now, uh, uh, you know, I'm uh, getting back to AA and his girlfriend calls and says, uh, 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 you know, I'm working and things are looking good and I'm skirting around AA. And as, as I get a phone call one night and a lady screaming on the other end of the line. She said, Jim's dead. And I said, Jim's dead. She said, yeah. I said, and I seen Jim go through a bunch of stuff and survive it. And I just couldn't believe that he was dead. And she said, well, call Falmouth Police Department. And, uh, and uh, I called uh, Falmouth Police Department and they said, well, we can't release any information on a homicide investigation, <laughs> well, that told me. And so I said, I'm on my way down. Well, let me tell you a little about this. I bounced in and out and around AAs from 79 to 86. I had met some people. There was two people, that Jim was one of them, and another guy named Andy. And I called him up and I asked him to 12 step my little brother. I don't know if you taught me this, treatment taught me that, but it was like, let, let other people treat your, let, let other people 12 step your family. You go 12 step other people's family and, and maybe they'll get sober. And so I called two guys and I asked them to 12 step my little brother in two separate occasions. And both of them said yes. And they did. There was a couple things that happened. Uh, it was a couple things that happened. One, the one thing is, was this gym guy, he was crazy, but he was a hugger and he just come up and he'd hug people. We'd go to these meetings and he'd hug people. And where I was from, men didn't even touch men where I was from. So it was a little odd for me. It just, you know, cultural thing. And uh, at first, uh, and he went down, he tossed up my little brother and he got ready to leave my little, we got ready to leave and he gave my little brother a hug. He said, I love you, man. I said, I hope you come and join us. And my he pulled away my little brother. My little brother looked at me and I realized that I'd never told my little brother that I loved him. And I walked up and I put my arms around him. And I gave him a hug and I said, I love you, man. I hope you get sober and come and enjoy this way of life. I mean, I wasn't even doing it. You know what I mean? I was. Not, that's why I believe that being an example is very, very important. Because what, as Emerson said in uh, in Sermon on the Mount, uh, 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 Fox Hughes Emerson is a quote, said, what you are, speak so loudly, I can't hear a word you're saying. And that's why I believe an example is so important. And I walked away from there. Another guy went down 12 stepping and coming back, the guy asked me if I had a sponsor and I said, no. And he said, when I got sober, it wasn't, are you going to get one? Is it, who are you going to get? It wasn't a question if you were, it was a matter of fact of who. It was, it was a given that you, that you had a sponsor. And I said, uh, 
I don't know, man. Anybody's been around, sponsor me. And he said, won't you ask my sponsor? And, and you know, I, it went against my nature to do what this guy would suggest. But I said, okay. And I asked his sponsor to sponsor me. And it was the greatest thing that ever did because that man changed my life. And I'm telling you, he died when I was a year and a half sober. But I'll tell you what, he gave me everything I needed to stay sober. Does that mean that uh, uh, I haven't had to have a sponsor since then? No, because I forget. I have to have a sponsor to remind me what my sponsor told me. And so I got up and I started. I buried my little brother walked down there and got murdered. And the first thing I did when I come back to AA was bury my little brother. And uh, and I, and I don't know if that what really made me conceive, but I just I buried my little brother and I got up and I. And I jumped into Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, and I started coming and doing. And I'm going to tell you what: it's not because I'm a wonderful individual. I'm a I'm a chronic I'm an alcoholic with a chronic aggressive disease of alcoholism, and I don't want to do these things any more than anybody else does. You know, I've got to where it isn't that I have to do them; I get to do them, and that that's really a change for me. And I started coming and going and doing. Hey, hey, and I'm going to tell you what, it's been 36 years and it's like, it's been, it's just went, and I'm telling you, so much has happened. I can never even begin to tell you if I'd have started at the beginning of my story, but I'm going to tell you a couple of things that happened. I ended up getting married in AA. I, the number two divorced me. I married a lady in AA. Uh, come January the 1st, if we're still married, we'll be married 30 years. We've got 12 grandchildren and, and 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 we celebrated Christmas here yet the last last Saturday. And I tell you a couple things. Uh, one thing is the importance of working with a drunk. And I'll shut up here at seven fifty five. Uh, but uh, my uh, uh, I remember uh, getting my whole family together. It was such torn and tattered. My wife kept her family together. Mine wasn't. It was torn and tattered. And one day we were standing here, and I smoke. I was smoking at the time. I don't smoke anymore. And we were out, me and my wife was out in the garage smoking and Christmas was going on or Easter or Thanksgiving, a number of the three family holidays we celebrate. And there was like 20 some people in my house. And I said, Jeannie, who are the people in my house? And she looked at me and she said, Bob, that's your family. I didn't come here for, I just didn't want to drink anymore. I didn't want to treat people the way I treated anymore. And these are the things that happened. And I got 12 little grandkids. My grandkids are opening the gifts. One of my granddaughters is sitting on the steps, and, and they had a little Christmas gift. And she's opening up her gifts, and she says, look, Dad. She's talking to her father. She says, I've got everything. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want for my family. And you see, I couldn't, I couldn't show up for my five-year-old daughter. That was my five-year-old daughter's over this daughter. And they insist on me seeing my grandkids. You know, working with drunks has given me everything that I ever needed. And I believe it's the very message and the very essence of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember working with a drunk and a guy asked me to help support a meeting out at the VA Domissory, which is uh, in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. At the time I was living in Bellevue and, and, and I was working with him and he didn't want to go, but I picked him up every Thursday night. We went out there, and at the end of it, we made a, a three-month commitment. At the end of that commitment, I saw a sticker on a van, and the van 
uh, said Joe Navy and asked who it was. He mentioned her name. It was the lady that uh, lady next door, uh, the lady across the street. She was my ex-wife that had the twins and I hadn't seen in 18 years. And through his daughter, I got to meet my twins. And I got to see my daughter this year. And, and, and she has two wonderful children. And one's a senior in high school and one's, one's uh, just starting middle school. And, and I get to enjoy my family. And, and, and it's more than I... And you see, if I'd have never been working with that drunk, I would have never met my kids, I don't believe. And I'm going to tell you a little story, uh, and then I'm going to shut up. I was sitting in the house one day, and my one of my grandbabies was sitting on the floor playing with something, and I was watching TV. And she crawled up my lap, and she gave me a kiss on the cheek, and she says, Papa, I love you. And I looked at her, and without hesitation, I said, honey, I love you too. You know, and I'd have been reluctant to, at one time to do that. And... And, and, and I realized I heard my sponsor's voice for the probably for the first time. My, my sponsor that passed away, he said, you see, Bob, that's all I ever wanted. He says, because you see, when I got here, my heart was closed up like a tight fist. And I wasn't going to let anybody in. Becoming and spending time with you and working with drunks opened up my heart to let my grandbabies come in. And my grandchildren touched my heart in a place that I never knew existed. And my sponsor said, you see, Bob? You know, my sponsor was an asshole. I don't know about yours, but mine was an asshole. Because they all turn into assholes if you can get around me long. And he said, uh, he says, uh, uh, you see, Bob, this is all I wanted for you. To live relatively at peace with yourself and the people around you. To be able to receive and give love and to walk with your God one day at a time. And I'm here to tell you, at that moment, I realized I had received everything that I ever needed, all more than I wanted, and I owe it all to you and the God that I've come to understand that here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And once you receive a gift so wonderful, or any gift, the only thing you can say is thank you. So I say thank you.